Good morning, Haven. <laughs> I didn't even realize until this morning when uh, I was seeing stuff on Facebook that I'm preaching on National Coming Out Day. How fitting. Uh, it feels like a lot of things in my life have come together from when I was uh, first celebrating National Coming Out Day as a young undergraduate student at the U of A. Um, so that's exciting. But um, yeah, good morning. A couple weeks ago, Leah introduced a new series called Remembering the Collective, um, where we're looking at what it means to be a community and to be a collective, especially in these times of physical distance and separation. And last week we spent some time processing uh, what connection has looked like for each of us in this time, what's been difficult. And one of the primary images that we're drawing from in this series is that of the body of Christ, uh, which Leah has introduced for the past couple weeks. It's an image that comes to us in the Apostle Paul's first preserved letter to the church at Corinth which we know in the Christian New Testament as 1 Corinthians. Now, Paul's teaching on the body of Christ in that chapter is bracketed by verses on a related topic. The verses that appear before and after the body imagery um, are there to, um, sorry, give me a second. Um, the verses that appear before and after the body imagery to facilitate that teaching are about spiritual gifts. Sorry, I lost my place for a moment. Uh, conversation about spiritual gifts often goes hand in hand with teachings on the body of Christ. For those who may not be familiar with this term spiritual gifts, it's used in the New Testament writings from Paul for the skills that exist among people in the spiritual community that benefit the community. These skills are understood to have their source in the divine spirit, making them more like gifts than skills just based on our own human expertise. There's something transcendent about them that goes beyond just ourselves for the sake of others. Now, for those who are familiar with the conversation about spiritual gifts, you might have experienced this topic in limiting and sometimes even biased ways um, about who has what kind of gifts and why and what people's proper place or role is because of it. But today, I want to break that open. I want to talk about spiritual gifts differently so that we might get a glimpse of why they matter today for this series on the collective, for what Haven is experiencing as a community right now, and for this time in our nation. So today, I'm going to talk about spiritual gifts, but we're going to take a different scriptural route to get there, the scenic route, if you will. Um, because remember, this is a letter. It has cohesion as a whole. There are things that come up early on that Paul connects throughout the letter. And I believe there's something there early on that is key to this conversation around spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. So will you pray with me as we get started? God, I thank you for this collective at Haven. May the words of my mouth honor you and be of service to the common good. May our hearts and minds be opened to the work of your spirit today. Amen. So when I was an undergrad student at the University of Arizona, there was this area outside in the center of campus that was the designated free speech zone. It was near the student union and it got a lot of foot traffic. And there was this like sloped grassy area where people could sit and face someone who was speaking. Technically, anyone could walk up, start talking about something, and try to gain an audience. 
It almost never happened though. <laughs> and that sloped seating area was mostly a popular lunch spot. Sometimes right-wing religious or political extremists would come to the campus and take advantage of the space. Um, and there were actually some major controversies in my years on campus over that. But for the most part, everyday students didn't randomly step up uh, to start speaking to people they assumed were an audience. Uh, if someone did, that would seem really strange um, because doing something like that is not a cultural norm for most of us. But the culture of ancient Greece, on the other hand, um, and later what was called the Greco-Roman world when the Roman Empire had conquered Greek cities, was quite different. This is something that in Paul's time was very different. So instead of a college campus today, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are living in the ancient Mediterranean world that Paul did. Imagine you're a merchant who works on a trade ship and you've just arrived to a port city bringing wood from Macedonia. This coastal city is a regular stop for you. And after you finish your business in the morning, you head into the city to visit a friend. It's a busy day. There's lots of people out and about. You pass through a market where you smell food cooking and you see a man selling pottery. And then you reach a public square. And over near the steps of a beautiful temple, underneath these towering columns, there's a small crowd gathered, listening to two different men. And you stop to listen to them too. The man on the left looks a little younger, but he speaks well. He's giving a speech about the nature of justice. And he's quite wise and eloquent for his age. And you can see why he has a few dedicated followers. But when the older man to his right starts to respond, it's clear that his eloquence in speaking is unmatched. He's a dynamic and captivating speaker, and you feel persuaded by his argument. You realize that most of the crowd gathered there are his followers. So you stay and you listen for another minute or two, and then you continue on your way to meet your friend. And as you're leaving, the two groups of people are bickering over on the steps, but it's good natured bickering, and you don't expect a real fight to happen like you've seen in the past in the city. You don't think anything of what you just saw because this is normal to you. This is a part of your culture. Persuasive, eloquent public speaking is an important part of public life. And this city has many talented public speakers. Now, what I just described was the culture of rhetoric, which was a major part of ancient Greek culture even after they were conquered by the Romans. This culture of skillful public speaking was especially prominent in the city of Corinth during Paul's time. And Paul knew this, and it's a big part of what he, why he writes what he does in the first part of his letter, which we call chapter one of 1 Corinthians. Now, you may remember when Leah introduced the context of 1 Corinthians a couple weeks ago, she mentioned that there were divisions in the church different factions were forming. And it's possible that some of this was because there were different house churches. Um, people didn't meet in the same location, so they might have had some allegiances based on gathering place or who had baptized who. We also know there were some issues going on because of differences in social class. But there are also some strong hints that an additional thing was happening in these divisions. And it's related to this ancient Greek culture of rhetoric. In that time, there was a strong culture of choosing to follow someone based on their eloquent speaking. 
and whether you liked how they argued their points. Um, and there was a certain status associated with that wisdom. But this is what Paul is going to challenge. After outlining these different divisions, Paul says, Christ did not send me to proclaim with eloquent wisdom. He's pointing out something very specific. And he's starting to turn this whole culturally valued skill on its head. Um, so will you join me as we pick up with chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians uh, in verse 25. <clears throat> For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Things that are not. To reduce to nothing things that are so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul definitely has something to say to the Corinthians about eloquent wisdom. He uses the Greek word for wisdom more times in these first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians than he does in the rest of his New Testament writings combined. And it's because the Greek culture at Corinth, what Paul would call Gentile culture, deeply valued wisdom. But they associated wisdom with the skill of eloquent speaking. In fact, culturally, the Greco-Roman pagans believed that wisdom was a gift from above. From the gods. But in verse 25, Paul starts with, God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. There is a paradox here that challenges the church at Corinth, and I believe also challenges us. What they think is wise, what they really value as a skill and is so central as a cultural value, does not even match God's foolishness, let alone God's wisdom. Why does this matter? Why did I include this passage on wisdom to talk about spiritual gifts? It's because this passage shows how God challenges the Corinthians' paradigms and assumptions for what counts as skill, what counts as wisdom. God challenges it. And I believe that God challenges some of our assumptions, too, about the gifts and skills that matter, the gifts that are from the Spirit. Notice that emphasis that repeats in this passage on God chose. Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world. God chose what is weak in the world. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world. God chooses what is considered wisdom, what is considered a gift and a skill. And more often than not, God doesn't follow our cultural rules and expectations. Because often those rules include and neglect wisdom that is for the common good. Now, cultural values around rhetoric that the Corinthians had 
um, may not be as strong for us. We may not relate to that as much. Like I was talking about with the college campus thing, that's not really something that's a part of our culture. Um, but we have our own prevailing societal wisdoms and values. I'm sure you could think of several. Um, one that comes to mind for me is wealth. Wealth is not just seen as a class status that you're born into in our society. There's a sort of skill that's associated with it that someone is particularly gifted and savvy to have gotten to the place that they are. Um, another one might be independence or self-sufficiency. This dominant cultural value that people who are able to do things on their own to accomplish things seemingly without the help of others, that that is a culturally valued gift and a, and a skill. Um, in our society, valuing these sorts of gifts, like the ones I just named, I think can block our ability to notice and honor the spiritual gifts present in people and in community. Now, I don't know about you, um, but in the past, in some other church environments, I've experienced discussion about spiritual gifts to be limiting and sometimes blatantly biased and oppressive. Um, I've had some of my own spiritual gifts ignored or denied because I'm a woman, because I'm gay. Um, I've witnessed the disregard of people's gifts because they were minoritized in other ways based on their race, their family background, their disability. And I would guess that I'm not alone in noticing this and experiencing this. Um, and so if you've also experienced this in spiritual community, um, I just want to say that I'm sorry and that I do not think that it was honoring the work of the Spirit. This stifles the work of the Spirit. Even though she continues to breathe life and be present, racism and white supremacy stifle the full recognition of spiritual gifts and community. Sexism stifles the full recognition of spiritual gifts and community. Capitalist economic values stifle the full recognition of spiritual gifts in community. Sometimes what is truly a spiritual gift that benefits the collective is not recognized or valued as a gift by the powerful um, and by the dominant culture. But for Paul, despite his own cultural biases and limitations too, which many of us are well aware of, um, all of this culminates in the declaration that Jesus is the embodiment of this wisdom of God. Jesus, this wisdom that challenges our prevailing wisdoms. Verse 30 says, God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Jesus is the embodiment of the wisdom of God. So if we want to see what this kind of countercultural wisdom looks like fully embodied, we look to the life of Jesus. Jesus as the humble servant who despite being the Messiah was crucified. This completely goes against Greco-Roman values of wisdom and power and influence. Paul is presenting a countercultural wisdom in claiming Christ as the wisdom of God. In Corinth, a Jesus-centered countercultural wisdom looks to the margins. As this passage says, God chose what is considered foolish what is considered weak, what is considered low and despised by that world. The wisdom that Jesus embodies asks, what about the gifts of the women? 
What about the gifts of people who are enslaved? What about the gifts of children? What about all the gifts that are so necessary for the common good that you don't value or even think of? Those gifts matter and are born of the Spirit. Your gifts matter and are born of the Spirit. They matter especially right now. In a time in our country um, when it feels like so much is fracturing and causing harm, in a time where it feels like our old ways of doing and being are not enough to meet the challenges that we face, in a time where we can feel so separated and isolated, the gifts of the Spirit and the collective matter. Jesus, as the embodiment of the wisdom of God, was unprecedented to the Corinthians. That's a word that's being used a lot right now to describe these times that we're in. I see it in emails, I see it in commercials, we are in unprecedented times. But what does that actually mean? It means that there's no precedent. It means that it feels like what is happening right now does not match what we or expect or what we believe should be happening based on what has come before. The rules that shape our expectations aren't holding anymore. The kind of wisdom that Jesus embodies is unprecedented to the Corinthians. It doesn't match the rules of what to expect, what is normal, of what is valuable. And if we are part of the body of Christ, which we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, we're part of the body of Christ, then the spiritual gifts in this body are also an embodiment of God's unprecedented wisdom. They're also an embodiment of God's unprecedented wisdom. And the gifts of the Spirit in this body will also reflect this wisdom of God that appears foolish to the world, to the prevailing values of the powerful. So with that in mind, let's turn now to the section of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians that comes right before Paul writes about the body of Christ, or he writes about spiritual gifts. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates all of them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the discernment of spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. <clears throat> Paul names several different gifts here. Um, but many of them sound pretty vague, and he doesn't really elaborate on them. The utterance of wisdom, the utterance of knowledge, faith, healing, the working of miracles. He doesn't elaborate because the details of the gifts aren't the focus here. Notice what is the focus, though. Notice what repeats in this passage. The same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God, the one and the same Spirit. The emphasis is on the source. The same divine spirit is the source of these gifts. 
And when that same spirit breathes life into the community and equips the community, there's a foolishness to it. What is valued for the common good will seem foolish according to the values of the powerful. But here's the good news about that, I believe. Unprecedented times call for the use of unprecedented gifts. We're living in a time right now where things are not as they should be to the extreme. These are, in a lot of ways, very isolating and anxious in scary times. Um, and we may feel overwhelmed. I certainly have. Things feel unprecedented, but we are not completely unequipped. This past week, as I was thinking about this topic, I thought of a story that I first read a few years ago about a woman named Phoebe Palmer. I'd forgotten her story, but it came to mind this week. Um, Phoebe Palmer came of age in the United States during the Industrial Revolution, which dramatically changed a lot of people's ways of life in a very short span of time compared to most of history. How closely people lived to one another, how they traveled, what kind of work they did, and how it shaped daily life. Um, all of this was in flux in a lot of places. And in the midst of this, she was a woman of great faith living in New York City in the mid-1800s during this time of profound social change. She was white and fairly wealthy and a devout Methodist, which is a major Protestant Christian denomination. Um, because she was a woman, a lot of her spiritual and social life was in the home. She started hosting a weekly prayer group in her home for other women in her church, and it became very popular. But it also became clear that something was happening in this space. Um, Phoebe was a gifted teacher who valued the spiritual experiences of the women in the group, and she was very attuned to testimony specifically. Um, and so these women began to regularly share their testimonies with each other and pray and study the Bible. Um, and in the process, they started to reclaim theological values about Christian love, about holiness that weren't being emphasized as much in their church as they thought they should be. Um, and it was having such a transformational effect on the women that they were sharing about the group with their husbands. And the men were mentioning it to the leaders in the church denomination. And so news spread. Um, and within four years after this women's prayer group started, men started attending too, to learn from and with the women. And Phoebe Palmer's house was packed. Gender divide had been crossed. Um, and in this time of major social upheaval, uh, a new spiritual movement was also born that became instrumental in the Christian fight for abolition. Many of the people who started in this prayer meeting took up the fight to abolish slavery at a time when the Methodist church um, was making far too many compromises on this issue. Um, and one of the men who attended the group was Bishop Matthew Simpson, who also became a close friend of Abraham Lincoln and gave the sermon at his funeral after he was assassinated. Um, there were major spiritual gifts present in that collective. Gifts that hadn't really been recognized and expressed yet, um, but the spirit was at work in a profound way, in a time of societal upheaval that felt unprecedented to them. They were not completely unequipped, and neither are we. 
Um, there are gifts here in this community that I believe by the power of the spirit um, can meet this moment and make it through as a collective. Maybe it won't inspire a revolution. <laughs> Maybe it will, um, but there are gifts. There are gifts that we might not even recognize in ourselves or in others as gifts. Um, we all have them here in this community. All of us are needed. We all have something that breathes life in us, that feels life-giving, but that also breathes life into the community for the common good. Paul wrote in verse seven that to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. These gifts are for the common good. They're for the collective. And these gifts are still present in this community, even though we're physically separated. This time may even help us to recognize some gifts in ourselves and in each other that we might not have noticed or considered before as gifts. Um, the spirit is still at work in this collective um, for the sake of the common good. So I encourage you to think about what those manifestations of the spirit are. What gifts do you see in yourself? What gifts do you see in others in this collective here at Haven? Um, and how might those gifts come together and breathe life in the body, in the collective, in this time? Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this collective at Haven, for our opportunity to virtually gather in this space, um, even though we may feel physically separated and are physically separated. Um, I thank you that your divine spirit is still at work. Um, and I thank you for the gifts of the spirit that are present in this community, both the ones that are already recognized and cherished, um, and also the ones that we might not have discovered or noticed yet. Um, I pray that in this time of major change and um, upheaval and anxiety that it also might be a time where we notice your spirit at work um, and we notice the light in others, the gifts in others um, that bring life for them in this time and that bring life uh, into this space. In your holy names I pray, amen.